Good morning, church. Grab a chair. I have the technology and the backup because the technology has already given us one heck of a fright this morning. Thank you very much to Rob for connecting and reconnecting and yeah, yes, there was lots of really, those really abbreviated prayers this morning around about between 8.30 and 9.10, Lord, make this work, please make this work. When I encountered the passage that I want to share from this morning in my quiet time a few weeks ago, nearly a month ago now, I knew that it would be a message at some point and so I wrote it on my messages yet to be written list, um, which I keep in my study. And um, when I was asked to speak this morning and just saying, Lord, you know, what, what do I share? I, I just really felt that this was the word that God had given me, that he'd given me that word for this time. So... I just want to lay that before God this morning. Father, I thank you that you love and provide for us, that you are our Father and the lover of our soul. And I invite you this morning, Lord, to speak to each of us. To speak to each of us yourself, Lord, to make known your purpose, to make known your heart to us as we share together. Amen. So this morning... I'm going to share from John chapter 13, verse 33, through to John chapter 17, verse 26. There's 126 verses in there, so get comfortable. It is going to be a long morning. <laughs> I'm kidding, it's all right. I am kidding. I'm kidding, but the look on your face was priceless. It was worth it just for that. So John 13.33 through to 17.26 is an extended dialogue between Jesus and the disciples. In fact, it's almost a monologue. If you've got one of those Bibles that has the words of Jesus in red, then virtually this whole section is in red. And what I want to do this morning is draw some things from that. And this passage, this whole 126 verses happens at a really pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry and in the life of the disciples. And if you think about where this passage occurs, it occurs immediately following the Last Supper, just prior to Gethsemane. So it virtually, it finishes when, when Jesus is sharing the Passover with his disciples and when Judas gets up to leave to go and betray him, Jesus starts at that point at John 13, 33. And he's dialoguing with the disciples and teaching them right the way through until they leave or arrive at Gethsemane. So this is the last extended teaching that Jesus gives or that Jesus interacts with his disciples before his death and crucifixion. And that's where this 126 verses appear. And so what I'm going to do, rather than read the whole lot, um, I'm going to read you a number of excerpts from it. And what I want you to do is just consider what is Jesus doing with this? Like, what is Jesus seeking to convey? What's his intent, his overall intent in all of this? And, and I've picked a number of passages. And I'm not going to give you the references because it's, I'm just going to read the passages. And I want you to look at that. What is Jesus doing overall in this? Starting at John 13, 33, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going 
you cannot come. John 14, 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. I am going to prepare a place for you. I'm leaping forward. If you love me, keep my commands. I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate to help you who will be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Because I live, you also will live. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you may go and bear fruit, fruit that will endure. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Well, now we're up to chapter 16. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are rendering a service to God. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then we come to John 17, which is three extended prayers of Jesus. One where he prays for himself, that he would glorify God. One where he prays for the 12, for his disciples. And then he prays for all those who will believe in him because of their words. In other words, you and I. And you've just covered 126 verses. So I picked those excerpts out. And what, but what is Jesus seeking to do? Remembering when this is happening, what is Jesus' point? What is he seeking to do? What is he seeking to draw the disciples into? He's preparing them. He's preparing them for what's about to happen, for his death, for the fact that he is going to be crucified. He, he's preparing them for this, but also he's preparing them for the future. He's preparing them for the time when he's no longer physically present with them. He talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. He talks about the persecution that is to come and warns them of it. So he's preparing them. And I want to zero in now on, on one of these themes, because there's a number of themes that run through those 126 verses. And I'm reading from John 14, 28 and 29. You heard me say I am going away and I am coming back to you. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. And then finally, to the passage that I encountered in my quiet time, which is John 16, verse 16 to 22. Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. At this point, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while, you will see me no more? And that I am going, and because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We do not understand what he is saying. 
Verse 19, Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child has been born into the world. And so with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. So I was reading that, that passage in my quiet time and I couldn't help but think, Jesus, why are you being so obscure? Like, seriously, if the whole point here is what you state in verse 29, I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen you will believe. If that's the purpose of this whole dialogue, of telling them these things to prepare them, why be so obscure about it? Because he's clearly referring to his death and resurrection. At least we see that really clearly. I will be gone for a little while. Yes, three days. And then I will come back. Yes, the resurrection. But the disciples didn't get it at all. So why wasn't Jesus a heck of a lot clearer did Jesus not know any more than this like was it that Jesus had this you know awful feeling inside that this was this this was going to go badly that maybe they would arrest him maybe they jail him like was was Jesus unaware to some extent of what was about to happen is that why he was so in a sense vague but we know that isn't the case because a week prior to this, when they set out to come to Jerusalem for the last time, we read from Matthew verse 20, verses 17 to 19. Now, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. So this is a week prior to that whole 126 verses. On the way, he took the 12 aside and he said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day, he would be raised to life. So Jesus knew. He knew in he knew in detail. So why didn't he just tell them? Why be obscure? Now, the twelve disciples were men. Okay, good with that. They were Jewish men, and. It is true that sometimes we men have to be told something multiple times. Ask my wife, it's just true. All the wives are nodding. It's just true. Sometimes we men need to be told things lots of times. So why didn't Jesus just tell them again and break it down? Would they have understood it? Well, certainly when he told them in Matthew 20, which was only a week earlier, they didn't get it. In fact, if you read Mark's account of that, it says they still did not understand. 
But now they've been in Jerusalem for the whole week of what we call Passion Week. Jesus had had several clashes with the Jewish leadership. He's cleansed the temple. He literally drove the money changers and the sellers of doves out of the temple. And he rebuked the, the temple keepers for their treatment of the temple, that God's house should be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. So he's clashed with the Jewish leadership. The disciples have seen the volatility of the crowds. And they've also seen the presence and might of Rome. Remember that Jerusalem... And Passover was when all the pilgrims would come, all the Jewish people would come to Jerusalem and they came to celebrate what? They came to celebrate the liberation of the people of Israel from a, an oppressor that was Egypt by the remarkable hand of God. And they saw strong parallels with Rome in that. So, so it was a volatile place, O Passover, and so there was a strong Roman presence so they've got all this context now to understand if Jesus told them plainly, but he doesn't. And it's clear that the disciples don't get it. And I was sitting in there in my quiet time saying, why not, Lord? Why not just explain it clearly and step them through it? Now, by, by now, it's late evening. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus withdraws and he prays all night. The disciples fall asleep and Jesus is arrested the next morning. We pick up the story in John 18. So Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials of the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Jesus then commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and took him to the high priest. So Peter had said he was willing to lay down his life for Jesus. And when the time came, when the, when, the, when the soldiers came, when the detachment came with weapons, he was ready. He drew his sword. He was ready to fight this. He was ready to stand with Jesus and, if necessary, die defending him. But when Jesus said, Peter, put the sword away, Peter didn't know where this was going now Peter was confused by it what, what what are we doing here Jesus like they've come to arrest you and they're really serious what do you mean put our sword away they didn't understand and at this point the disciples world starts to crumble Jesus is led away the crowd turns against him he was tried by the Sanhedrin, he was sent to the Roman governor, he was condemned to death by crucifixion and he was crucified and the disciples saw him die there on the cross. To understand the extent to which the disciples world collapsed at that point, you have to understand that they were Jewish, they were Jewish people all their lives they had learned about the Messiah. And they knew that, 
that the Messiah, when the Messiah comes, he will restore the glory of David's kingdom. He will, he will rout the enemy. He will defeat the Romans just like Moses defeated the Egyptians. He will restore the glory of the nation of Israel and Israel's God will be worshipped throughout the land. That's who the Messiah was. That's what they believed. And they believed it for centuries and they yearned for it and waited for it. And the disciples had come to the place where they knew Jesus was their Messiah. After all they'd seen in the last three years, they knew that the, that the hand of God was on him. That God was working in incredibly powerful ways through him. They saw in him the type of Moses almost. And, and they saw that this was how it was going to be. And now he was dead. Now it was over. They had no expectation of anything beyond this. When the women went to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning, they went with spices to anoint a dead body. They did not expect to encounter a risen one. Everything that the disciples thought they knew about God and about God, what God was doing fell apart before their eyes. And they were devastated and they were undone. And what really bugged me in my quiet time was that Jesus could have spared them all of their suffering. He could have spared them all of that pain. He literally could have sat them down and explained. And I was telling him this, like, Lord, you could have just sat them down and explained it to them. Like, okay, guys, sit, listen. In the morning, they're going to come with soldiers and they're going to arrest me. And then they're going to take me off to Caiaphas, the high priest. You know, Caiaphas, guy in Jerusalem, the temple, they're going to take me there. And they're going to call a meeting of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court. And they're going to convict me. And then they're going to send me to the Romans. And the Romans are going to condemn me to death by crucifixion. And I'm going to be crucified with a criminal on my right and one on my left. And then they're going to lay my dead body in a tomb, guys. And after three days, I will rise. And I will come to you and I will explain to you how this all fits together and reveal things that you can't yet understand or know. Like seriously, lay it out step by step by step, like a flow chart, you know, starts here. Boom, boom, boom. A PowerPoint presentation would have done. Everybody understands after a PowerPoint presentation. And then he could have given them the flow chart and said, put this up when you leave this olive grove, when you leave Gethsemane, put this up on the wall of your house and as each of these things happen, tick them off. Right? A to-do. Right? And then you will know exactly what's happening and you will have the confidence that God is in this and that this is not the end. Why didn't he tell them plainly? And it was one of those slightly strange quiet times where you feel like you're having this sort of two-way dialogue. And I felt like God asked me, so, okay, Rodney, and the next time they don't understand what's happening, the next time that the way forward is clouded and unclear and uncertain, what do I do then? And I said, well, the simple, Lord, you sit them down and you explain it, step by step by step. And I felt like God said, and the time after that, 
Oh, I'm persistent. I said, you sit them down and you explain it step by step by step. And then the next time, this is getting repetitive. And then I felt like God asked me, where then do they exercise faith? Where do they take what I have said and believe it, even though they don't understand it, even though they don't get it? Even though it seems to make no sense, when do they do that? When do you do that? Because I'm sure there were many, many, many times in the early church when the disciples could not see what God was doing. Like, God, how does this pan out from here? They just stoned Stephen. Lord, he's dead. We've mourned for him for days. What are you doing? What's happening here? Lord, we expected that all Israel would turn to you. Like, you are the Messiah. Haven't they read Isaiah 53, Psalm 22? We thought the whole of the nation of Israel would turn, recognize your Messiahship and worship you. And Lord, lots have. But most of them have just got angry at us. I'm sure there were lots of times when they didn't know what was to happen next. I'm sure there were days when they didn't think the gospel would make the rest of the year, let alone the end of that century, let alone be proclaimed all over the earth by this age, by 2,000 years later. They learnt to hold on in faith to what Jesus had said, even when they didn't understand even when it knowed no sense, even though everything around them would scream the opposite, they learned. And that faith was fashioned in the fire of Jesus' death and his resurrection. Only knowing vaguely, only having promises that, that sort of fit, but, but aren't that clear of exactly what's happening right now. In that time of testing is where their faith grew. And there is a really, really uncomfortable truth in this. An inconvenient truth to steal our course. And that's this. God is more interested in our growth than in our comfort. God is more interested in our growth than in our comfort. And I'm really sorry if someone told you that Christianity isn't like that, that someone laid out a plan in which there is a whole bed of roses in which you walk along and God protects you from all the hard bits of life and all the messiness of living in a creation that is in rebellion against its creator. And if someone said, you'll just walk through that and it won't touch you, then... I'm sorry that happened. There's, there's a good book that you could read that will help you adjust and come to grips with that. And it's called the New Testament. Start anywhere in it. In holding on in faith, when we don't understand, we grow. It's really hard, but we grow. And Wendy shared part of that in her story last week. I would rather not have gone through this but God grew me in it. So, God had one 
and my argument with him in my quiet time had been dissolved. But how did the disciples do? How did it go? Well, it didn't actually go that well, frankly. Peter denied knowing Jesus, not once, but three times. When directly asked by a servant girl, someone with relatively little power, you were with him, you're one of them. No, I was not. I do not know the man. Peter learned a lot about himself in that time, in that three days. And it shaped him. It shaped who he became. It shaped him into being the man that was able then to discharge the ministry that God called him to. Interestingly, it didn't end his ministry. Isn't that weird? More importantly, the disciples learned some profound things about God. See, we and, ne- we and they now know that Jesus was right. God knew what he was doing. Whether the disciples understood what was going on or not, Jesus was raised on the third day exactly as he said he would be. Jesus was right. When Jesus said in John 16, 16, in a little while you will see me no more, then after a little while you will see me, he was right. And when Jesus said, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy, he was, he was right. And we know that when he says in John 14 too, my father's house has many rooms, I am going there to prepare a place for you, he is right. And when he says in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world, he is, he is right. Whether it looks like it or not, he is right. And when he said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, he was right. And in John 10, 28, he said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And he is right. He is right. We know and we trust in Jesus' love for us. We have a relationship with the creator of the universe, the omnipotent God, for whom all of time, all of the plan, all of our lives in each of its detail is known. And that's a fearsome thought. We also know that that same God came in Christ and went to the cross to demonstrate that all of that omniscience, all that knowing, all that presence, glory and power of God was prepared to go to a cross for you and I. In other words, we trust his love. We trust when we don't understand. We trust when we don't get it. We trust when it doesn't look like it, but we have to hold to it because we know he is able and we know his love for us is complete, complete to the cross. Amen. Let's stand. If I could have the band, that would be great. It's great to ask God questions. You learn a lot that way.
<laughs> yeah. And you have to accept the answer, said Gary. I just want this morning, I just invite you to put your hand on your heart as a way of responding. And I just want to pray. And then we're going to sing the chorus of that last worship song. Father, we, we entrust ourselves to you. We entrust ourselves to you when we understand, when we see what's happening, when we understand it, and we choose to trust you when we don't see what's happening, when we don't get it, when we don't understand. We choose to entrust ourselves to you when we see clearly and all we have is an incomplete understanding of your promises. We will hold to those. Lord Jesus, we see you. We learn. We see the example of the disciples. And we know, God, that this world is a messy place. That it isn't in assignment with your will, that it's in rebellion to you. And yet your grace pours out. And we entrust ourselves to you, God. For you are both powerful and loving. Your love for us is demonstrated. Your power for us, though incomprehensible, is undeniable. We love you.